Welcome to the first episode of The Elitist Family Next Door. This is an investigative podcast which dives into the background of a school friend's billionaire business tycoon father and the family on his father's side. The investigation takes place in June of 2009 up until March of 2011 when I was forced to go into hiding. At the time of this recording, I am still in hiding and I will keep my whereabouts unknown until the time I feel safe to come out. The information I'm about to reveal throughout this podcast is explosive. Some of you listening will not be surprised, as some of this information has been circulating the internet for years as laughable conspiracy. For others, well, I guess it's up to you to decide what you believe. For some of the information, I have direct evidence. Others, it's circumstantial. And for some, well, it's just hearsay. It's for this reason I've decided to redact some of the names, places and events that took place to protect some of the sources. The reason I have done this is because the bulk of the information pertains to most, if not all of the elitist families worldwide. Everybody has heard of the global elite families of the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers and the Waltons. They have almost become a war cry for the lower classes of what the 1% truly is. But what if I was to tell you that there are families and bloodlines that the general public do not know about? What if I were to tell you it's these families, these bloodlines, that are really pulling the strings behind the shadows? Whether or not you believe in conspiracy theories, and truth be told, most conspiracy theories are just distorted facts to push an agenda, be it satire or for more nefarious reasons, you have to admit Society does feel like it's being pushed in a certain direction. Just a quick disclaimer. Some of the audio in this podcast is of low quality. It was recorded with the purpose of being a reference tool for future articles written and was never intended to be published. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissent is a silent. No expenditure is questioned. No rumor is printed. No secret is revealed. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations, a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. Okay, you want me to talk into this? Now you, you want to disguise my voice, right? Okay. Okay, I was in the CIA from 1991 to 2004. And I can tell you, 
every agency, all of them, around the world, knows about the global elite. They all know about them. It's the world's worst kept secret. Okay? Now, there are two, two main reasons why the globalist agenda at the moment is failing. Two main reasons. One is culture. Culture is, is one of the main reasons, right? And number two is nationalism, okay? I'll get into both of these things because they're very important and it's, it's really why they haven't succeeded up until now, up till now. Now with the culture thing now, everyone is talking about Islam, bad terrorism, sort of related to that. But terrorism is a byproduct of globalization, okay? Now, I don't care who you talk to, that is just a fact, okay? That is a fact. Terrorism is, is a byproduct of globalization. And globalization is a globalist agenda for, for one world government. It's leading to that, okay? Make everything modern. Now, Oh, globalization. Okay, now, how, how, how did we get to where we are now? Okay, the, the, the terrorist attack 9 11. Now, okay, we didn't do that to ourselves, but we let it happen. Okay, CIA knew about it, FBI knew it was going to happen. They knew it was a credible threat, and they didn't act on it, they let it happen. Okay, they turned the blind eye and let it happen. We got caught with our pants down. Now, so now we've got to go into these other countries. It's always been about resources. We went in Afghanistan, and then we moved to goalposts and said, well, okay, Saddam must be involved, okay? Now, the whole reason we went there is because he wasn't playing ball with the oil. Okay? It had nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction, None of that. It was always about oil. Where we need the resources to run our economy. Okay? Now, nationalism is the next big thing. Okay? Now, you say nationalism is a, it's the lowest point in history right now. It's almost frowned upon to be an American who's proud to be an American. Now, um... Now, you say nationalism and automatically people think of the white neo-Nazi skinhead waving a KKK flag. But that couldn't be further from the truth, okay? The reality is, the biggest nationalists in the world are Afghanistan farmers, okay? They're willing to fight, they're willing to die to keep foreigners off their land. Now, they don't want us going over there, taking over things, diluting their culture, diluting their religion, okay? Now, I can respect that. I respect other people's culture. I get that, okay? So, the way I think 
people need to understand this and when you whatever if you use this I don't know but the way people need to understand this okay it's like the water's like one giant chessboard okay now it's got multiple players and those players are the elite okay they're the players all the rest of us the chess pieces okay now they're going to stage events in the future because this war is not going well people want to pull out you know after 9 11 happened we're screaming to go over there but we've had too many deaths it's dragged on too long okay because these people won't give up now people want out so they're going to have to do something drastic to get the people involved again in the war to get get people motivated to stay over there to keep enlisting in the military and to keep going over okay now i'm not sure what it's going to be i don't have the answers i can't tell you because i don't know but they will do something within the next five years I'll, I will promise you that to keep this war going because they need it to keep going for their plan to, to to be enacted okay they need it to keep going now they don't care if they financially cripple any country around the world even the ones now globalists they call them globalists for a reason because they're not connected to any territory okay they're above all that now they don't care if they financially cripple the US the United States the United Kingdom Australia where you're from they don't care now the reason why they don't care is quite simple now, if you think about it like we're on an island okay now the elite have all the resources they have the fruit they have the vegetables they have all the meat okay now they create a system where you work and the currency is seashells, okay? So, see, you get, you, you work on the island, you get seashells. And with those seashells, you can go and buy your meat, your vegetables, your fruit, okay? Now, if the economy crashed on that island and the seashells were now worthless, that means nothing to the elite because they still have all the meat, okay? They still have all the fruit, they still have all the vegetables, okay? So you got to look at it like that. Probably the best way I can put it to you. The war against ISIS. ISIL. ISIS. 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 ISIL. Islamic State. ISIS. World terrorists. Islamic State. Islamic extremists. The Islamic State. ISIS. Our war against ISIL. That was an interview that I conducted in late 2010. I will play the rest of the interview in a later podcast when the information is more relevant. The next tape is the second last interview that I ever recorded. It was conducted in early 2011. Due to the poor quality of the recording, I've decided to forego it and storyboard the information to make it more palatable. The conversation was with a retired Pakistani ISI agent. He would go on to tell me a version of a story 
that I had never heard before. And even with my acquired internet sleuthing skills, I've still yet to come across this version of the story. The information was in regards to Osama bin Laden's role within the US government and the real reasons we went into Afghanistan. In the 1990s, the Taliban was locked in a civil war with the Northern Alliance over control of Afghanistan. I think it's important to note that throughout the 1980s and the 1990s, the Taliban was made up largely of Afghan farmers. And as far as the West was concerned, these were the more moderate Muslims. The Russian and Iranian governments were heavily backing the Northern Alliance. A young Saudi heir to a billion dollar construction empire named Osama bin Laden decided to take up the fight with the Taliban. A CIA operative who is unknown even to this day approached the young Saudi heir with an offer that was too good to refuse. The United States government would supply the Afghan fighters with top-of-the-line A-grade military hardware and weapons and tactical training. In return, should the Taliban win the civil war and take control of the region, a globalist-owned pharmaceutical company wanted to secure the rights to the farming and supply of opium, which is grown locally. It's important to note, Afghanistan poppy fields supply 90% of the world's opium. It is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. As history shows, the Taliban did win the civil war. And the CIA operative, he was successful in brokering a deal through Osama bin Laden with the Afghan farmers and Big Pharma. But that's not where the story ends. It's this part of the story that is still heavily debated between members of the elite Pakistani intelligence agencies. Either the Afghan farmers had signed a contract with the US-backed Big Pharma for the rights to the opium, or they hadn't. But it was at this point that a second player would enter the negotiation table for the rights to the poppy fields. The Communist Party of China would go on to offer even more money to secure the contract for the poppy fields. Given the support the Afghans had received during the civil war by the US, the farmers, through bin Laden, decided to offer the US a chance to match the offer China had made and the rights to the poppy fields would be theirs. But Big Pharma would decline the offer and insist that the Afghan farmers stick to the original deal. The farmers would reject Big Pharma's counteroffer and negotiations between the global elite pharmaceutical company and the Afghan farmers would come to a standstill. The Afghan farmers moved to finalise negotiations with China when United States black ops soldiers started conducting tactical operations to derail the deal. The first round of assaults came to burning down property, farmhouses and barns. When this was unsuccessful, it escalated to burning down acres of poppy fields. When this did little to persuade the farmers, the assaults escalated to cutting off the food supply by destroying the roads. By this stage, word had gotten back to Osama bin Laden, who resupplied the farmers with food and repaired the roads with his family's construction company. This was just the start of what would be an ongoing war 
for the rights to 90% of the world's opium supply. Everybody listening knows what happened on September the 11th, 2001. My name is Charlotte. I am the producer for the Elitist Family Next Door podcast series. I have been an active human rights, animal rights and environmentalist activist for the better part of 15 years. I am also an active member of Anonymous. If you have any information that pertains to the globalist agenda, please contact me via Facebook or email. The links will be in the description. Oh, hey. Yeah, yeah, I got your email. I also got that audio gear you sent me. I, um, I've made changes to the script that you sent over that you want me to do the voiceover for because they weren't fucking exactly factual, so I've changed that. I still think the best way of putting this shit out there is just by playing the tape start to finish. You know, I, I realise the information's scattered, but people are fucking smart enough to work that shit out. Well, I just want, you know, I just want them to know that fucking, if something happens to me or people that I care about, you know, I'll release all the names, but that shit is ready to go. Like, something was to happen to me, it's fucking ready to go. The start of the tapes, I hadn't actually accepted the job yet. I was waiting to hear back about an internship at the... Yeah, <laughs> let me believe that it was about insider trading. Um... You know, because had he told me what it was really about, I would have just thought, fuck, this guy's off his meds. Well, his dad was a very prominent businessman, so insider trading sort of made sense, and, you know, he knew my dad, and my dad was a stockbroker. You know, growing up, I saw, you know, some of the people my, my dad worked with go down for insider trading, so, you know, it was out there. No, 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 my dad was completely against me studying journalism. He wanted me to be a fucking stockbroker like him and, um, and chase the money. Yeah, well, you know, I was so junior, I didn't really fucking, you know, know how to record shit. I mean, that, that's why some of it's as bad as what it is, you know? You know, in hindsight, you know, I think really fucking picked me to do this shit. Um, purely because he, he knew he could trust me. I mean, I wanted to be a sports journalist, you know, and I wanted to do fucking print. Like, I never, never thought I'd do investigative journalism, so it was, like, fucking well over my head. I think it was, it was like, you know, due to my lack of experience, I didn't really know how to um, protect myself, so I asked too many people too many questions, and, you know, it was always going to get back to them, I guess. And, uh, you know, inevitably it did, and this is why I'm where I am now. The information in these rooms, um, the general public have a right to know. I mean, that's really why we're doing this. Everything from the beginning of government to religious institutions, I mean, there's a ton about fucking Jesus in there and who he really was. You know, secret technology, fucking social engineering, space colonies, ritual sacrifice ancient fucking civilizations. I mean, our real history as a fucking species. 
you know, who we actually are is, is in those books, is in the pages of those books. It's world-changing info. That's why, you know, they don't want it out there. Imagine if people knew that life wasn't all about fucking working and buying shit. From what I know, these books in these libraries are fucking, you know, they're secret publications that only the fucking 0.01% get. It's not meant for our eyes. The elites treat the earth like it's one big fucking company, you know, and they're the board of directors and the rest of us are just fucking shareholders who don't get to fucking make any fucking decisions on anything. That's how they treat it. Well, people will, you know, they'll make up their own fucking mind if they believe it or whatever, you know, it's up to them. I mean, all the shit that, all the tapes, everything, it has to be one fucking big hoax. on the next episode of The Elitist Family Next Door. No, the thing is, man, like, I didn't fucking know my dad that well. So, you know, it was only in the later years that I got to know him. Yeah, I would have been, like, 14, 15. 15, I'd say, when I got sent over to the UK. Like, I didn't like it. The whole ideology of it. There was a lot of children born in... Uh... Domo, no, house. Mothers never saw their babies. Shadow